again, it's a delight to be here. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and I bring greetings from Providence Chapel to you. The text we pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from is Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I want to speak on the theme this morning, the price to know Christ. The price to know, the price of knowing Christ. Philippians chapter 3, we shall begin reading in the 7th verse. But what things were gained to me? These I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." really bothers us to speak of price or expense in our relationship with Christ. We know that we are saved without paying any price. Just as the prophet cried, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The Apostle Paul declares to the Ephesians in that second chapter, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. So here I am talking about a price to be paid to know Christ, and therefore this, the sound of that offends us, doesn't it? But there is something you and I need to remember, that while our salvation is free, meaning without merit, without earning, without price, that doesn't mean that we must not lose something if we are to gain Christ. Repentance demands that we reject one thing in order to pursue another What we once loved that is contrary to our Savior, we must now hate if we truly are to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, my dear and beloved friends, there is a price to know our blessed Lord. And the question I want to press upon your mind today, as well as your heart, are you paying the price? And if not, are you willing to do so from this moment on? And it's this fact that we have either forgotten or we refuse to see. We don't like the language of self-denial. And so we paint over it with words like free grace, free salvation. And we demand no payment or severing of whatever we deemed as profit or gain or achievement. And hence so many, quote, so-called Christians are deceived in living a lie. They profess Christ, but have not, as our dear apostle in our text, counted nothing lost. Their life has not really changed. They just added religion to it. Are you such today? You're a religionist. You would subscribe to what I call the doctrine of the rightarian. You want to live a right life. And if you're right, more right than most, then you feel secure. You've not rejected, refused, or turned loose of what you've always loved. And that, my dear friend, is problem number one facing Christendom here, at least in this nation and many other nations that I visit. But there's a second problem. Many true Christians 
have not thoroughly and completely counted all things lost. And it's the reason that their knowledge of the Lord is so shallow and limited. And so I come here to press upon brothers and sisters in the Lord. Are you growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, the desire is there, though maybe buried, maybe latent. It's there, you know it is. But are you paying the price to gain? The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now you know that this text is autobiographical. Paul is talking about his own life and the loss that he suffered, what he would deem worthy of loss on the Damascus Road. And so, first of all, let me direct your attention that there's a past loss here in verse Seven. But what things were gained to me, these I have, past tense, counted loss to Christ. There was a moment, a time in space and history where Paul recognized that there had to be the giving up of that which he prized in order to gain the big prize, the ultimate prize, the most glorious prize, Jesus himself. And what is he speaking of? Well, if we go back to verses verses 4 and 6, he's talking about his pre-conversion life, his life in Judaism, his life as a religious, God-fearing Jew. You see, this whole discourse of the third chapter is the result of Paul trying to deal with the same culprits of the Galatians fiasco, the Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews, mainly Pharisees, who seemed to follow Paul wherever he went. And after Paul would leave, he'd come in and say, Oh, yes, you Gentiles, I'm worth thrilled that you accepted Jesus as your Lord. But there's some things Paul failed to tell you. We've come to fill in the gaps. You know, Jesus is the Messiah, but he was a Jewish Messiah. And that salvation is of the Jews. So if you're really going to be in with God and you're going to grow in this new faith, you've got to become Jewish. You have to practice circumcision. You need to follow the kosher laws of Moses and the feast and Sabbath of the law of God. That's what they were teaching. And Paul says these men have confidence in what they can do. Their flesh. Their religion, their goodness, their rightness. And then he hearkens back to his own Jewishness. He basically says, if they think they're Jewish, let me tell you how Jewish I am. Ah, they'll pale in comparison to me. And that's what he's actually saying. Look at verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Quite a resume, wouldn't you agree? Concerning the law, blameless? Quite a mouthful. Quite a statement. And yet he meant it. He's not lying So as he deals with these Philippians, don't be deceived. Don't put your confidence in anything but Christ. He acknowledges that there was a time when he had put his confidence in himself and what he had achieved in his religion. But there he was confronted with the glory of the resurrected Jesus and everything changed. His perspective changed on what is really valuable and what is not. Oh, my friend, I'm not asking have you prayed a prayer and been baptized or joined a church. I'm asking you, has the resurrected Christ confronted you? And you can know if that has happened because the glory always transforms. The glory of the resurrected Christ always transforms. Paul says such in 2 Corinthians 3.18. From glory unto glory. We are being transformed by that same glory. What glory? The glory of Christ. The beauty, the majesty of Christ. He saw it. 
Yes, he saw these physical eyes. None of us have, I'm sure. But my dear friend, there is something by the power of the Spirit in the act of conversion that you don't need to see or hear, but nonetheless real, and it transforms. Paul says, now that which I had considered prized gain, achievement, I consider it loss, past tense. That's the hallmark of conversion. Have you been converted? Are the things you once loved, your sins, even your religion, now you hate in the Christ and His righteousness, this thing called grace and living by faith, you once hate, now you love, you cling to, you cherish. But there's not only a past loss, there's a present loss in verse 8. Not only it is Damascus conversion, he lost something for Jesus, but he continually counts and evaluates what helps him to strive for Christ and what doesn't and what doesn't he rejects. Yet indeed, verse 8, I also count all things lost, present tense. Paul is near the end of his life here writing this epistle. Almost 30 years after the conversion of the Damascus Road. And Paul is saying present tense as an older man. I'm still counting things lost. Conversion, you see, doesn't rid you of your extraneous cargo. Think of a ship that has too much cargo and it gets mired down in the mud of the sand. What do they do? They start throwing things overboard in order to lighten the ship so now it can be buoyed by the water and sail and move. At your salvation, the day Christ saved you, yes, a lot of things went overboard. Thanks be to God. As I talked in the first hour, the power of sin that had so captivated me, that thing was broken that day. I was set free. But my friends, there's still some extraneous cargo I'm carrying around today. And I'm not talking about physical weight or pounds. Talking about the flesh. What the Bible calls fallen human nature. You have not been rid of all your sin or corruption. You have not been made perfect. You've not yet been glorified. You are in that process. There are still things about you that are extraneous and they are to be considered lost. And so in verse 8, Paul calls all of Not just sin, listen carefully, but all his good, all of his advantages, all of his achievements. He calls them rubbish. The old authorized version really gets it right. But it's a little vulgar, dumb, feces, human waste. I consider it waste, garbage. Why? Well, because of verse 8. He had seen the incomparable good. And the incomparable good made good look not so good. What do I mean? Well, let's read verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. That I may gain Christ. It's the excellency of Christ. That puts everything into proper perspective. And so now my question changes. It evolves. It grows. Not have you seen Christ. But are you seeing Christ? Tell me about your walk with God. Think with me. Is there a consistent viewing, beholding, seeing the beauty, the glory, the incomparable greatness of Jesus? Come on, I'm asking you, don't just think I'm preaching a sermon, I'm talking to you. Have you seen recently? That's what he's saying here. When you see the excellency of knowing Christ, it puts everything in perspective. Everything you would thought was good to your advantage now becomes simply trash, refuse. It has no merit or value to you. Just as the hymn writer said, Earth's fairest beauty, heaven's brightest splendor, 
who Jesus Christ unfolded see. All that here shineth quickly declineth before his spotless purity. Oh, my friend, that's how true Christians are made. And that's how true Christians grow. By Christ, Christ alone. All of our righteousness, all of our good and service to God compared to Jesus is, as Paul described it, rubbish. And that's what Paul is saying to us today. That's what he said to the Philippians. Since my Damascus conversion, since I first saw Christ, I not only counted all of those things, verses 5 through 6 lost, but even now, all of my service unto God, all of my fruitfulness, that yes, the Holy Spirit produced in me, all of my church planting, all of my preaching, all of the epistles that I have written, all of that compared to Christ is rubbish. Because none of those things will hold me up in His presence. None of these things will keep me standing before Him without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That's not my confidence, in other words. I consider it dung compared to the righteousness of Christ, which is my only confidence. That I would be found not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, but the righteousness which is from God by faith. The righteousness that is in Christ Jesus by faith. There, there is the only thing that I prize. Everything else is sinking sand. Everything else is unstable and not worth it. That's a remarkable thought. That almost nearly 30 years of a ministry that is still working and ministering today. The church is built upon apostles and prophets as foundation. That means those apostles' ministry, like the Apostle Paul, is still ministering to us through their inspired writings. A ministry that has lasted and will last as long as till Christ returns. A ministry of 2,000 years of fruitfulness. He said, in comparison to the righteousness of Christ, it's rubbish to me. I count all things. And I believe all here means all. And this I see is the secret of the Apostle Paul. It's not really a secret. It is the Christian life at its heart. You must see all of your good for what it is, my friend. It is rubbish. Oh, it's so easy, even after truly becoming a Christian, to base your relationship with Christ on your spiritual experiences. I have plenty of them. I shared just one or two this morning. I have many more I could share of spiritual experiences. And it's so easy to say, I am right before God and accepted in my sight because, look, I had this experience. Or look at my growth in grace over the years. So I ask you this morning, when you examine yourself, do you do so on the basis of your knowledge of Christ Jesus or by your service to God? Don't pass that question too quickly. I'm not going to. I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to ask it again. When you view your relationship and you examine it, do you examine it on the basis of your knowledge? And here the word knowledge just doesn't mean intellectual. It means experiential also. Are you basing relationship with Christ on your knowing Him and experiencing Him or by your service to God? So easy to do the latter. I read my Bible and and over the years under sound teaching I've learned much truth and my doctrinal And theological knowledge has grown, and uh, I do believe salvation is of the Lord, and uh, I believe in His sovereignty, and I see many things that the average Christian has not been so privileged to understand. And I pray, and in fact, when I pray, I get answers to prayer. I can tell you numerous answers to prayer. Is that how you examine your heart or your relationship with this church? I'm infective in the church. I support this church. I give to this church. I serve in other capacities, whether it be deacon or teacher or, 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 or 
ministry of hospitality or mercy, whatever your function of service is in this church? Or do you simply say, hey, I refrain from worldly entertainment. I don't do those things anymore, and those things don't amuse me like they used to. By the way, my spiritual maturity, I've grown over the years. I can see how I have progressed in faith. My friends, Paul is saying all of that in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness is rubbish. It's garbage. Yes, we are to serve the Lord. Yes, we're to be fruitful. Yes, His Spirit is to produce the fruit of Christ in us. Absolutely. But that's not the basis of my relationship with Him. That's the fruit that I Paul is saying, I don't put any confidence in any of what God has done through me. My confidence is in what He's done and what the Gospel says He's done. And that's it. That's my only boast. And I gladly boast. I'm so glad that I'm willing to take my whole ministry and just trust it to God so long as I can know Christ. He says he's not putting any stock in these things. Not even his spiritual maturity. It would not present him faultless before God's throne. His righteousness was Christ. That I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is already through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Don't read those words and think that Paul is unsure of his salvation, that he's trying to labor to make sure, or he's struggling with his assurance. I mean, he will even go so far as to say in verse 11 that he might attain to the resurrection, if somehow I might do so. You don't need to read those words as if there is doubt being expressed by Paul. He's simply saying, I want you to understand, even as I explain this, I want to be humble enough so that you don't think that I'm putting any confidence in anything other than the righteousness so that somehow I will be found in him because I don't deserve to be found in him. It's a statement of humility, not of doubt. He had already told the Philippians in the first chapter that whatever he had committed under God, God would keep it. He knew that and he was certain that he who had begun a good work in them, he would finish it until that day. He's not uncertain about his position with God. He's just saying, listen, I have no confidence whatsoever in me. It's all in Christ. Because Paul knew what most of us don't know. The deceitfulness of sin. How would you describe the deceitfulness of sin? Well, you simply say, sin is sly. Sin is deceitful. Yes, but what is that? Paul knew that sin had the big lie. There was one overarching lie that comes against you and me every single day. One lie that's always told with the, every temptation, no matter the temptation. We find it in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And Paul realizes the Philippian susceptibility because he was susceptible also to the big lie. Now listen carefully. You've got enough in your own heart without Satan's temptation to destroy you. The seeds of this corruption is all that's necessary. And Satan's not needed to cultivate that seed. It can bring forth... And germinate on its own and bring fruit. But we do know there is not only the lust of our own desires, as James said, and there's where sin begins, but there is the enticer. There is the tempter. And no matter the bait, the hook's always the same. A thousand and one different baits, a thousand different approaches, lies, but in the heart there's only one lie. Told many different ways. And we see it right here in Genesis chapter 3. Paul refers to it in his first chapter of Romans, verse 25. And they exchanged the truth of God for the singular, definite article, the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's only one lie Satan's ever told, and he just has learned how to tell it 
in fanciful ways, but it's still the same. Let's look at it in Genesis chapter 3. This is why Paul is going here and saying what he's saying in our text. Because he knows there's something still in Christians, still something in me, that is susceptible to this lie. There's something in me that wants to believe the lie. Whether you're saved or not, even unconverted people listening, you believe the lie, I'm susceptible to believe it. Now the serpent, verse 1, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Ah, there's attack number one. Satan expands God's command of prohibition, the prohibition of eating, to all of the trees. Do you see that? Has God said, indeed, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? By doing so, he's implying something here. What he's trying to do is to get her focus on the one tree. And so he begins by saying, you're not supposed to eat of any of these trees. So... He knows how she's going to respond. She's going to focus. No, no, no. It's, it's the one tree, as you'll see in just a few moments. And so now he's got her focused. But there's something else very, very subtly suggested here. He's implying that God is a God who forbids pleasure, joy, and delight, and demands obedience. He's a hard God. He's a difficult God. What's the problem with God that He denies you joy and yet requires strict allegiance? That's what's implied subtly with this question. See, His aim is to make the tree of the knowledge of evil, good and evil, dwarf the goodness of God in all of the other trees in the garden. There was another command given that same day. Do you know what that command was? Eat the fruit of all the trees in the garden. Look at all these wonderful trees I've given to you. Eat and enjoy and be delighted and experience the pleasure thereof. But Satan has now got her focus on the one tree. And so she says in verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then... The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So now no longer subtle, but an outright lie. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Attack number two. Out and out accusing God. Of lying. God didn't tell you the truth. You're not going to die if you eat of that truth. Here's why he told you that. Because he's not as good as he claims. He knows that the moment you eat that tree, you won't need him any longer to tell you what's right and what's wrong. Because that's exactly what the situation was up to this point. Adam and Eve had basically no moral code. They were instinctively righteous. God hardwired them that way. And so, basically, God was determining what's right and what was wrong. And, and Satan is saying to Adam and Eve, listen, if you eat this tree, God knows that you'll be just like him. You won't need him. So what he's trying to do is keep you under his thumb, keep you enslaved to him, keep you coming to him to know what is right and what is wrong. No, no, you eat that tree. You'll be like God. God's selfish. God is not good. And so the conclusion of this two-pronged attack was, Eve, follow your own wisdom. Process, interpret the world through your own senses. And that's exactly what she did. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desired to make one wise, you see that? Good for food, delight, joyful to the eyes. Desire to make one wise, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And at that moment, something 
cataclysmic happen to their nature and constitution. A radical shift took place. As I said a moment ago, they were hardwired to be righteous. God made them righteous. He made them inclined to want to do what he said. But at that moment, something was implanted within their nature, their humanity, a basic distrust of God and an overinflated trust of themselves. That's what happened. That is the flesh. And everyone born to Adam and Eve have this instinctively in them. This is the seed. This is the corruption. This is the whole whole essence of what the flesh, fallen human nature is. Everyone born comes into this world with a suspicion that God is not as good as he claims to be. And that they, better than God, know what's best for them. That's it. And that, my friend, is the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has leverage because of that inner corruption, that instinct. To naturally not trust God and trust yourself more. And therefore, sin always appeals to this natural distrust. Sin says, you better than God know what will be joyful and pleasurable for you. And so when Eve's focus was on the one tree that she could not eat, you know what happens. She immediately loses sight of all the other trees she could enjoy. Satan's strategy was to get her to lose sight of God's amazing goodness in all the other trees of the garden. The focus is now on the one prohibition. Isn't it amazing when temptation comes? How easily the mind can become obsessed with that thing, that that's the only thing you can think about until you get satisfaction. The mind seems to be rendered numb compared to any biblical argument to resist the temptation. Why? Because there's something in me that naturally wants to trust me more than God. Because I believe I, better than God, know what will make me happy. And so with that focus... Before she even touched the fruit, Eve's view of God became distorted, perverted. And instead of seeing all the wonderful things that God is and provided for her, all she could see is the one thing he was keeping from her. Don't eat this one tree. She forgot about the other command. Enjoy the fruit. Eat. Be happy. Enjoy my goodness. No, no. She now saw God in a different light as the selfish, selfish lawgiver who was there to keep her under his thumb and to deprive her of what she should have. He was no longer loving. He was no longer kind. He was no longer good. And you couldn't trust him. That's the deceitfulness of sin. And that's always the focus of temptation. The prohibition becomes the focus. Now how should Eve and you and I view God's commandments? Because did not Jesus say before he left, go into all the nations, all the world, and make disciples, (coughs) baptizing them in the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, and doing what? Teaching them to observe All the things I have commanded you. Yes. There are commandments. And we are to obey. How should we view those commandments? Satan deceived Eve to see that the commandments were joy killing. Pleasure killing. Stifling. Rather we should see the commandments of a loving savior as the means to joy and pleasure. Just the opposite. Eve should have heard God's command as a declaration of his great love for her and Adam. She should have said, he told us not to eat because he loves us. And I don't understand it all. But somehow I know because he's loving, it's got to be the best. But that's not what she processed. 
What did she prosper? How? How do we understand this? How do we understand this in relation to you and your walk with God? Well, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, created an an imaginated scene where God in the garden gives the instructions. The instructions of eating all the trees, but not eating the one tree. And this didn't really happen. But it... Even though it's imaginative, it does illustrate biblical truth. And so at the risk of boring you and diverting your attention, which by I say at this point you've been a real attentive audience, thank you so much. I would like to read this. It's a little lengthy, but it's worth it. Again, this is from Sinclair Ferguson. I don't normally do this, but I I felt the value in it, and it was worth the risk. Here's what God is saying to Adam and Eve. I'm giving you everything in this garden. Go and enjoy yourselves, but just before you head off, I've given you all of this because I love you. I want you to grow and develop in your understanding and your love for me. So this is the plan. There is a tree here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat its fruit. I know you want to know why, don't you? Well, I've made you as my image. I've given you instincts to enjoy what I enjoy. So in one sense, you naturally do what pleases me and simultaneously gives you pleasure too. But I want you to grow in trusting and loving me Just for myself because I am who I am. You can only really do that if you are willing to obey me. Not because you're wired to, but because you want to show me that you trust and love me. If you will do that, you will find that you will grow stronger and your love for me will deepen. Trust me, I know. That's why I put the one tree here. I so want you to be blessed that I'm commanding you to eat and enjoy the fruit of all these other trees. That's a command. But I have another command. What I want you to do is one simple thing. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. I'm not asking you to do that because the tree is ugly. Actually, it's a very attractive trees, a tree as the others. I don't create ugly ever. You won't be able to look at the fruit and say, oh, that must taste horrible. It's a fine-looking tree, so it's simple. Trust me, obey me, and love me because of who I am and because you're enjoying what I've given to you. Trust me, obey me, and you will grow. End of quote. Now, again, it's an imagination, but there is much truth there. The problem was not instinctive to Adam and Eve. They didn't have the corruption that you have. They hadn't fallen yet, and yet they gave in because of this deceitfulness of sin, because they believed the lie, the big lie. But you and I, we can be so easily deceived because we have, as a default, this corruption within us. And I want to explain how that corruption manifests itself to you. I want you to see how easy it is for you to believe the big lie because there is this instinct in you that naturally trusts in you more than it trusts in God. Isn't it interesting that the very first thing Jesus said has to happen if you're going to be his disciple is to do what? Deny yourself. Which I interpret, translate, Deny yourself the right to trust in yourself. That's what he means. Why are we so easily, even now after almost four decades of walking with Christ, how can I still be deceived? How are the Galatians so easily hoodwinked? I mean, they had just been saved. And they have been saved under the preaching of the Apostle Paul, no less. They saw all the miracles. How could they have been so quickly turned because of the natural desire of the flesh to pursue joy apart from God? 
Flesh does not and cannot submit to God because it doesn't trust Him. And that's every in every one of us. It wants what it wants, when it wants it, and how it wants it. And so within you, my friend, in this flesh, with this desire to exalt itself because you now are susceptible to temptation and its deceit, you think you know better than God. And there's the lie. The bottom line is this. You have this natural default position to not want to trust Christ explicitly, but to trust you as well. Now listen, Christian. I'm not saying that it's a either or. Either you trust God or you trust you. No, you have trust. You believe God for your salvation. You have truly trusted Him, and He has forgiven you. He has transformed you. He has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. You have been saved. But with your faith comes the corruption of this flesh, and it pollutes your faith. It mixes in with your faith in God. And so you want God to be glorified absolutely. So long as you get some glory too. That's how it shows itself. It manifests itself in two ways. Listen carefully. Either in disobedience to God's command. Which looks like a person living according to their desires. So long as their desires are not too scandalous. You know as a Christian we've got to be careful. can't do certain things. As long as we're not scandalous. I know what's best for me. I love this. I like this. I don't want to give this up. It's not that bad. And we justify it. Because we think we know better than God what will bring us joy. Or it manifests itself. Now listen carefully. because This is where most of us are. This is the majority in my opinion. It manifests itself in one trying in the power of their flesh to please God and thus find joy in their rightness rather than in God's rightness, the righteousness of Christ. Now, some of you are not in your head. You understand it. Some of you may not get that yet, but you will. Hold on, I promise. But I want to first deal with the first approach. When you live indulging your flesh, you lose joy in God. If you're a Christian, you disobey. You will suffer loss of joy in Christ. There's no pleasure in God and sin at the same time. And the more you indulge the flesh, it becomes your master. It becomes powerful. It becomes stronger. There's no fellowship with God in whose presence there is fullness of joy and whose at right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 5, if they continue in this, trying to keep the law, all they're doing is indulging the flesh, and what will become manifest are the works of the flesh, and you remember what those things are, adultery, fornication, immorality, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, hatred, Division, wrath, selfish. He goes on and on. Because the more you indulge the flesh and disregard God's commandments and live in opposition to those commandments, the less you have power in the Spirit, the less power you have in the Spirit, the more the flesh becomes stronger. And it will eventually destroy you. That's what Paul tells the Galatians. Now the second approach to the majority of us. When you trust yourself to please God, when you trust, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to study, I'm going to increase my time of devotion because I want to pursue the Lord. A good thing, a wonderful thing. I recommend it heartily. But when you do it in the power of you, by your own discipline and determination, you are now beginning to trust yourself and not God, and you immediately start losing joy in God. That's what happens. The preacher, but the preacher said if I were just studying more and learn Christ through the Word, my joy would increase. Yes. 
If you come to the book in the right attitude, humble, knowing that your intellect is not sufficient. It's not enough. You need the Spirit to teach you. You need to see Christ. Because the, the Bible is the testimony of Christ. You don't read to learn about Christ. You learn to see Him and experience Him. Any other ways is the way of the flesh. And you begin to lose joy. And then what happens? Well, you begin to question your salvation. You lose assurance. You begin to, you begin to feel weak and you begin to wonder, maybe I'm not even a Christian at all. Or, if you're like some of us, you seem to be able to pull it off. You seem to be able to do better than most people. As I said in my testimony, I thrived in a religious environment. Give me more rules to do. Give me more spiritual regulations. I'll show you. And really the person I was trying to show was myself. Validate myself. And the more I could validate myself, the more joy. And what happens? You become full of pride and self-righteousness. And with that is the loss of fellowship with God. It ceases. God seems to grow silent. We want to trust ourselves or our joy. Listen carefully. This is the heart of what I want to say to you this morning. So our joy will be in us and not just Christ. We are like a young preacher many years ago. I talked to, I was preaching for him and he poured out his heart to me. He just told me, man, I'm miserable. My walk with God has just seemed to turn south. I can't find God anywhere. My Bible reading's dull. I don't enjoy preaching. Ministry, all the difficulties there in the church. What's wrong? Can you help me? And so I looked at him and I said, yeah, I know what your problem is exactly. Here's your problem. You cannot absolutely, completely rejoice that you are a sinner saved by grace and that's all you'll ever be. And he looked at me and he said, I don't understand. I said, well, let's let the Holy Spirit be the teacher. You just think about this for 24 hours. And if you still don't understand, come back and I'll explain it. And my friend, this is the problem. There are some of us, because of our flesh, we cannot be happy. And that fact that all we are before God is a sinner. And that's all we'll ever be. Even in heaven glorified. You will still have been a sinner saved by grace only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. You will realize better to then than now how unworthy you are of that celestial city. You will understand what I just said perfectly. The moment you come into His presence, either through death or His coming, in seconds you'll realize, I didn't merit this at all. He's not saved me because I was a preacher. He's not saved me because I was good. He didn't save me because I served Him. He saved me because He's good. And He loves me. To experience what Paul is crying out here. To know Christ in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, Can only come to a man or a woman who's come to terms with what they really are. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. If you want to be self-validated in your Christianity, you've come to the wrong place. If you want to prove that you're something... Everybody's told you you're nothing, but you want to prove it. And you want to prove it through your relationship with Christ. My friend, that is the flesh. That is the big lie. Because ultimately, it's trusting in you more than in God. And that's why there are so many true Christians so miserable out there. Their grace has been corrupted by their faith in themselves. And here they are laboring, trying to please God as if God is some unpleasant taskmaster rather than a father to love and enjoy His love. 
Come now. If you are to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, to be conformed to Him, my dear friend, come to the place that Paul has come to. Nothing about you is good. Nothing in your flesh is good. The only good thing about you is Christ in you. There's your righteousness. There's your resurrection and hope thereof. Christ. There's just some of us in this room that will not be free until you can finally stop wanting God to be proud of you. We're like little children, like sons, wanting their father's approval and pride. Friend, you've been accepted in Christ the Beloved. And He's perfect. Is your goodness compared to His going to even compare in the end? I mean, what good thing? My sermon to you right now is the very thing Paul said, done. It will not help me in the end. But, but, but preacher, we've been told that we will be rewarded for our good works. We're not talking about rewards. We're talking about your joy in Christ. Your relationship, your intimacy, your fellowship in Him. And it's not based on my sermons or my prayer life or my Bible reading. It's based in Him alone. He's my joy. He's my consolation. He's my uplifter. He's my all in all. As long as the flesh and that subtle deceitful seed has any moisture or food or fertilization or cultivation, your joy in Christ will be diminished. And I know the time is ellipsed, past, but I want to go to verse 10 and finish. Paul wants this ongoing knowing of Christ that I may know Him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what Paul is saying? Can I just break it down for you? It won't take very long. Yes, the heart here is that heart of Psalm 42. As the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants after thee. When shall I come before my God? There's a hunger for God here. Yes. And I've asked you, is there a hunger in your heart for God, for Christ? But he's saying something else. He is saying, the more I see his power, that resurrection power, I saw him resurrected. And the more his resurrection power works in me, the more I see how good he is to me. The more I see his power bestowed on my behalf, helping me, loving me. Given to me when I don't deserve it. Even loving me when I've sinned against Him. Being merciful and kind even when I have been unkind to Him. The more I see His power, the more good I see. And how good He is to me. The more I see how good He is to me, the more I trust Him and the less I trust me. I guarantee The problem with Christians here today that are languishing has no pleasure in God. The issue is you have forgotten how good God is to you. You have forgotten the command, eat of all these other trees. Look at all the good I've given to you. In the hours of challenge and affliction and difficulty, oh, how easy it is to become bitter. Why? Because of that seed of distrust. But my friend, open your eyes. Look at all the goodness of God. Look at all the things bestowed upon you. Christ himself, namely. And the more I trust him, the less I trust me. And the less I trust me, the more I gain of Christ. And the more I gain Christ, the more fellowship I have in his sufferings. Why? Because you become more like Christ. And the world hates you. And the more fellowship you have in his sufferings, the more I see my trust in myself and my unbelief in him. It was good that I was afflicted, said the psalmist, that I might learn thy statutes. 
You see, God allows you to enter into his sufferings to show you just how much you really do trust. I've heard people say, after years of serving the Lord, let some tragedy happen. And they will say, I just don't understand. I just don't understand. I've served God all of these years and now this happens. Did you not hear what they just said? What are they saying to you? There's there's still that, that trust in themselves and this unbelief towards God. But the more they suffer, the more they go through it, God purifies them until they can say, Oh God, I deserve far more than this. I deserve far worse than this. You've been so kind. And therefore, by the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, you are being conformed to his death, which is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives within me. The way to experience Christ in you is this verse here and this text. By renouncing any righteousness and goodness, even now that you are a Christian and have served him 10, 20, 30 years. To realize that any goodness in you produced was a work of the Spirit of Christ in you. It is not your platform upon which you will stand before God. It will not hold you up before him, no. There's only one thing. Jesus. Jesus. And his perfection and obedience being given to you. What did Jesus say in that great sermon? Chapter 5, verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom. How righteous were those men? I don't think you would like to be compared to them, frankly. Fasted twice a week. How many times, how many times do you fast a week? Give tithes, not just of 10% of your income, but all that you possess, even your garden. Do you do that? Pray daily. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not getting in. So how do you think your goodness, even after 30 Seven years of serving the Lord. How do I think my goodness is going to stand before God when I can't even live like the Pharisee? But it's even worse than that. My righteousness will not be compared to the Pharisee. It will be compared to Christ. I'm just telling you right now, there's not a one of us combined here helping one another can live as righteously as he did. He perfectly obeyed the Father. Even when the Father asked him to do something that was contrary to his nature, he was willing to submit to it and embrace sin for us. Are you that righteous? No, you know you're not. Then quit acting like it. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in his grace. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in his righteousness that he loves you enough to bring you in and clothe you with his garb, his garment of perfection. I I fear I have not adequately explained what's in my heart. But I leave you with the Holy Spirit this morning. He, better than I, can help you to see what I'm trying to communicate, what this text has said to us. But I wonder if there are some here today who would say, "I, I haven't paid the price to know Christ like this. What's that price? Tell me before you cease. Here it is. It's called the denial of self. Death to self. Resignation from any merit of your own. If, my dear friend, your hope of eternal life is somehow attached to you, performance, what you believe, anything else. Oh, I pray you'd renounce it like Paul. Consider it dumb. And be found in Christ and His righteousness alone. I'm not getting to heaven because I'm a theologian. I'm not getting to heaven because I learned a lot. I'm not getting to heaven because I preached a lot. I'm getting to heaven because I'm a sinner. And I've come to accept that all I can ever produce. It's all I'll ever be. It's all I can do on my own. All I can do is fail. It's all I can do. 
It's all you can do. You're a failure this morning in the strength of your own arm and wisdom. Rejoice that there is a Savior who loves we pitiful failures today. I'm not saying go around and say, oh, I'm a worm, woe is me. No, no. Rejoice. Rejoice that there's a righteousness that can replace yours and sustain you at all times and bring to you the joy and the pleasure that it has to offer. May God help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.